Welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and the meaning of life. My name is Dave Marr. I'm a Chicago comedian. I host the show. I was in a coma about eight years ago, and now I got a bunch of questions, and I ask them of my guests. And normally there is a guest on the show, but occasionally I like to shake things up, and this is one of those occasions. I am doing another solo episode here. If you're a close listener, if you're a frequent listener, you might be aware that a solo episode is occasionally a sign that I have not booked a guest in time to publish an episode with a guest. Is that the case this time? Maybe, maybe not. I'll never tell. Because I do try to make sure that in these solo episodes, I have stuff to say. I'm not just coming on, yapping at you. If I don't have that, we'll skip a week. But I'm here, I want to talk, and I'm glad that you're here to listen. Before we get into it, I want to thank very much all of the people who support this show on Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee or a meal a month. That's either $5 or $15. You can get access to the full-length conversations, just the raw audio of the show. Or if you're at the $15 level, those are the Pigeon subscribers. Pigeon pigeon subscribers? Pigeon level subscribers, yeah. And uh, those folks are John Lee, Shuba Singh, The Unit, Katie Llewellyn, Susie Carroll, Kurt Chang, and Fred Fidoa. So I'm grateful to them. I know that you're used to hearing the whole subscribe, rate, review, like, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe thing. Um, which, you know, there's a reason. These these algorithms are fucking beasts, man. But I am a real uh, one-man band here in a lot of ways. And that that money from Patreon, it, oh boy, it really helps. And if anyone's looking for someone to do some other work for them, that sure helps too. Email me at thisisdavemar at gmail.com. I'll, I'll coach you. I'll give you feedback. I'll edit your thing. I'll facilitate your thing. Let's talk, you know? Um, but that money is really, really helpful. Um, not trying to tug the boat there. Just explaining that it's important. The other thing that folks have been doing recently that's important and kind and helpful that I've been really grateful for is people have left reviews on the podcast. And that shit is fucking awesome. That makes me feel so great. Got another five-star review last week on Tuesday, the day the episode came out. Um, and it's it's not coming up in in completion here for me let's see if i can get it up on my phone but it's a five-star review from k nativa i think i think that's i think i'm separating those letters and names out correctly but um okay here we go here we go the uh the review says the title is a very good and thoughtful time three exclamation points love it Love a show with questions so good that it makes me rethink my own answers every time I listen. That's amazing. 
just a super sincere time talking about big life stuff. Dave is such a good dude, and I'm thankful for his vulnerability. You know, I feel like sometimes I really work against this good dude thing and these interests. So I, I, I'm grateful for that. Every time I listen, I find myself wishing for it to be my turn as a guest. Hey, maybe, maybe it will at some point. Does that make me self-centered? I don't know. Probably. Okay. Well, you're in good company. I'm, I'm editorializing here. And then they go on to say, but that's not the point. The point is the show is good and it makes you think, and geez, just listen to it already. I feel like they, I feel like we adopt a very similar tone by the end of that, um, that review point being, if you have, uh, I know most of the people who listen to the show, listen on Apple podcasts, please rate the show five stars or one star. Genuinely. I only want five star and one star reviews. Um, but also if you write a review, you know, that, that shit doesn't take any time to write. Just, just do it. Just, just blow off your job for a second and, and do that. It makes my week genuinely. I think about those things and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, if you can't support financially, it's really hard to overstate how much, uh, those, that, that emotional support, the words of affirmation, it's a love language for a reason, you know? So, okay. Support the podcast on Patreon. Um, subscribe to my newsletter. I'm not going to drop my normal uh, commercial for the newsletter. It's called Definitive Answers. Uh, I talk about some of the stuff I'm going to talk about in this episode. But um, here we're going to go way more in depth. So you can subscribe to that in the show notes. What we're talking about today is Audrey Lord, the god, the poet, the the essayist, the thinker, the iconoclast, Audre Lorde, um, is the shit. And, and I say that from only knowing one essay of hers <laughs> and the master's tools metaphor. But we're going to talk about that essay. We're going to talk about the uses of the erotic. Uh, we're going to throw in a little bit of Miriam Kaba there. And this is not an academic exercise, okay? Um before I say a little bit more about how I'm not an expert on Audre Lorde, let me say that I am not the, I'm not the guy to come to for societal takes about gun violence. And here it is. We're, you know, over five minutes into the show. And now we're getting to, why I am uh, saying what I'm about to say on this this episode. There were a couple shootings in the past couple weeks in uh, Uvalde, Uvalde, Texas. I apologize for not pronouncing that right. In Buffalo. And the shit is horrifying. Uh, I'm, again, I'm not the guy to provide the societal breakdown on that. What I am the guy for is plumbing my own depths. Uh, you know, does that make me self-centered, K Nativa? You're like I said, you're in good company, you know? Uh I'm I'm hoping that by being self-centered and 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 sharing it, we can overlap a little bit. I'm just I'm just trying to 
make clear that there's a Venn diagram going on and then allow for as much overlap between me and you in that Venn diagram as possible. So I, I, I'm, I'm saying that I've had a lot of thoughts about despair. And last week I talked to Dylan Rodriguez, sort of an OG abolitionist scholar and thinker and activist. And he talks about the ways in which we're living in hell. And that is real. The, you know, without being sensationalist about it, without being, without reducing things to just symbols, think about the hell of, I mean, imagine you're like me. Imagine you don't have kids, so you're not even thinking about sending your kids to school every day. Imagine you're white, which I hope is a stretch for some people. I hope all the, all my listeners aren't white. Um, you know, imagine you have you 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 have enough distance just to feel these things um, through through the refraction of. Uh, the 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 prism of of media and uh, social media and sort of an ambient horror. Even that causes a stress that is that is hellish. I'm I'm looking for work, as I made clear earlier, and. One of the things I'm thinking about genuinely, and I'm not being sensational here, is, you know, how can I look for some work? I mean, look, what I would love is to be doing this podcast full time and touring my one man shows. Being immunocompromised with diabetes, uh, I talked about it in the first solo podcast, The Unknown is Our Only Hope. The, that the touring shit, the the performing shit is is very uh, it's tricky right now. Point being, I'm not looking for a job doing only the things I love right now. So one of the things I'm looking at is is this a job where I can develop a skill that I can use when society collapses. That's that's a real thing that is going through my mind, which means every day that I'm applying for jobs, which is every day, I'm thinking, okay, what what would that societal collapse look like? How quick could I get to the insulin? Do I camp out at a Walgreens? Do we go to Indianapolis and just fucking bang down the door of Eli Lilly? Is that what we're doing? That's the insulin manufacturer. Um I'm not sure if they're mine actually anymore. It might be Novo Nordisk. Either way, we have some options. But there are reasons to despair. Even, even you know, my recognition, 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 wow. Okay, we got there. Uh, my recognition of diabetes as a disability has unfortunately led to some more demoralization. I, I'm I'm prone to feeling, you know, I'm aware of the ways in which my life is marginalized right now. 
Um, and that's with those privileges that I mentioned earlier. But the point being, even doing something as quotidian as struggling to find a job, which is a real fucking panicky struggle, which I think most people can relate to. But to put that over the backdrop of the hellscape that we are in, even saying hellscape is a little I'm, I'm wary of because that, that goes a little cartoony maybe. I'll just say the hell that we're in. There are reasons to not hope. Reasons upon reasons. But to build off that, that first solo episode where I talked about that Rebecca Solnit essay where she mentions the future genuinely being unknown. Like it, it, things are not written and that is cause for hope to build on that idea. Um, I, I started thinking, I started thinking, especially in response to Uvalde where, uh, where I, I just had a thought in my mind of like, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I know I already apologized. Just, you know, start every episode with an apology from me. I should, I should do that. I should say, welcome to This Is Your Afterlife, conversations with artists and activists about death and the meaning of life. My name's Dave. I'm a comedian from Chicago. I'm sorry. Uh, my guest today, you know, that's how I should lead it off. But in response to that elementary school shooting, which it's fucking crazy just to say those three words so matter-of-factly. And that's not even an original observation. But, you know, in the midst of very valid, you know, gun control debates, talks about the ineffectiveness of, of governing parties and officials. Um, you know, I just started thinking like, whew, do you just give up? You know, like it's, it's hard to go about your daily life when that shit's happening. And, and I kind of know the answer um, for me, which is no. It's like a flat out immediate, no, you don't give up. You have to hope. Um, and in that unknown is the only hope episode, I talked about the unknown being grounds for hope. But I want to talk about the, the quality. What is hope? And this is where Miriam Kaba comes in. Miriam Kaba, kind of the 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 godfather of of modern abolitionist, not one of them, one of the sort of foundational thinkers of current uh, prison industrial complex abolition. And she says, um, in a chapter of her book, "We Do This Till We Free Us," called "Hope Is a Discipline," which is one of her famous phrases. She says, "Hope isn't an emotion." Hope is not optimism. So I, I realize I buried the lead there, but that's what we're talking about. I'm talking about, I've, I, I have to hope. And I have to hope 
because hope is not the same as toxic positivity. She goes on to say that the idea of hope being a discipline is something I heard from a nun many years ago who was talking about it in conjunction with making sure we were of the world and in the world. Living in the afterlife, already in the present, was kind of a form of escape. But it was really, really important for us to live in the world and be of the world. The hope that she was talking about was this grounded hope that was practiced every day, that people actually practiced all the time. And so that practice can look really different. The practice of hope for me often involves just talking to people. The practice of hope for me is deciding not to be discouraged by not having a guest this week, deciding my thoughts were valid enough to speak on mic, deciding that you want to listen, want to listen to this point, want to listen past the Patreon plugs and hear me talk about hope. That is the practice of, of hope for me, is to try to connect in this very intimate medium about these ideas, about how we, how we have to. I mean, it's, I see it as hope or nihilism. That's where my thinking is right now. It's either, it's hope or despair. This, this middle ground, push it away kind of, is, is a, that's, that's not a deliberate way of, 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 of living in the world. That's pushing away feeling. And I like that Miriam Kaba mentions the afterlife. Audrey Lord mentions the afterlife uh, in this uses of the erotic essay too. But before that, she talks about um, that that numbing that I that I was mentioning. You know, what are we numbing? And for her, it's the erotic. And this is where I say I'm not a scholar. I'm not. I'm definitely not an Audre Lord scholar. I'm very aware that this essay was a speech delivered to a women's conference. So I'm already taking this shit out of context. There's many places where she talks about the erotic as feminine, as accessed by women. Um, and. Uh, yeah, th- this is this is me per- perhaps colonizing, but I hope just paying tribute to and and being inspired by uh, the really beautiful, true things that I hear from Audre Lorde in this um, in this speech, this essay, and so please know that this is this is Audre Lorde for white boys. Um, but it's also, <laughs> I was saying that I'm, I'm trying to distract you from the fact that I have to switch the books that I'm reading out of. I'm switching from the Kava book to the, uh, to the Audrey Lord book, but you don't, you don't know that I can just shut up and, and, and grab the book. Okay. So let me do that right now.
Okay. So the the point of me mentioning that I'm not a Lord scholar is that um, there's a lot in this essay that I just won't be able to get to, but I can, I can talk about what inspires me about it and how I think it's related to, um, to hope, to how we can approach the moment, this hell that we're in. So in looking to kind of define the erotic as uh, a little bit by negation, but as, as best I can by taking things from this essay, one of the things she said, it she says is the erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. A measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power in honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. So it's a, it's a feeling. It's a sense. And she gives some clues about how we can know when it's coming, where it is, um, by talking about the phrase, it feels right to me. And she says that that phrase acknowledges the strength of the erotic into a true knowledge. And she's talking about it beyond superficially. So people say things like, oh, you know, what time is it? Oh, it seems like it's probably about 1 p.m. Oh, that feels right to me. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, oh, I really want to perform stand-up and crush a, a packed room of people, which is something I wrote on a bucket list years ago. And then getting on stage and not even having a full rush. And maybe because I'd performed improv so much before, but immediately locking in to a pace with it. Not immediately. That's not true. It took me several months before I locked into a pace. I had to set a goal of 300 sets. But once I had that goal, the phrase, it feels right to me, applies. The, the act of performing comedy live is an experience of the erotic in my life. Because if it's not clear by now, Audrey Lord, I mean, she compares the erotic to pornography and she, she includes the, uh, you know, sexuality in her discussions of the erotic, but it's not limited to that. The erotic is this feeling, this, this sense of satisfaction that we can tell by the phrase, it feels right to me. And thinking about these acts of horror, of, you know, I'm not even going to go synonym and say cruelty, evil, you know, killing people in mass, which is something not just individuals do, governments do it, people in power do it. 
but seeing it so acutely. The, the impulse to feel despair is strong. To give up. That shit is real. And it's important to acknowledge it. And it's strong. But if I'm being really honest and I'm just speaking for myself, despair doesn't feel right to me. Because I'm alive. And I want to stay alive. And I want people to be able to experience life. I want to connect with people. And despair doesn't I don't know. I'm I'm losing my train of thought a little bit, but despair doesn't feel right to me. So it's easy to go then, okay, so then hope. And I've explained the practice, you know, one of the things I do, do a podcast, right? Um, but part of the reason I wanted to talk about all this is that um, there's connection to the stuff that I talk about and I ask people about on this podcast. And when I say we, I mean my guests, I mean to the extent that you're kind of a third point of that triangle. You, the listener, are, are supporting these questions by listening. Um, I These ideas of hell, the idea of the afterlife, that shit is fucking overlapping here, right? And I started this podcast because, and I joke about it because it is, it is, I hope it's funny. I love an impossible task and spending over 80 episodes, almost 90 episodes at this point, trying to get people to assuage my fear of death. I recognize as an impossible task. And I think there's perhaps not a belly laugh in that, but a sort of um, large, big picture comedy to that project. Um, Not to defend my own comedy, but that terror is both funny to me and it's fucking real, man. And I know I'm not the only one. I know there are some people who don't think about it all the time. I don't think about it all the time. Maybe more than most. I mean, almost certainly more than most. But I... Where am I going with this? I'm talking about why I started this podcast. To get comfort right? Um, And I don't even know how to compare them, but the fear of no consciousness that I have 
the panic that that induces in me and the fear, frustration, stress, despair, sadness we all experience at living in hell. You know, the easy thing to say would be like, the only thing scarier than than dying and there being nothing is living in hell. I, I don't know which one's scarier, but they're both fucking scary, right? And, and I want comfort for both of them. And I think there's comfort, if not solutions for both of these fears. And some of that comfort is found, you know, in moments on previous episodes of this show. But what's the comfort for living in hell? And and I'm I'm down if like I'm I'm not attached. I would love there to be an afterlife. But if it's not clear, I'm not I'm not a fucking youth pastor. I'm not I'm not converting anybody. This isn't a Christian show. This isn't a religious show. I I'm I'm open to the comfort of no afterlife. But the thing that I'm seeing well I I certainly recognize that the afterlife has been used to placate people and and being placated is not hope. That's not the shit that we're talking about. Hope is I mean, it's action. It's 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 acting. Uh, not even despite a feeling. It's acting in parallel with feeling. The feeling. It's it's like a lie detector test. Maybe the hope is that steady line on the left. The action and the feeling is the fucking you know spazzy line on the right. It's like sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes it crosses the straight line. I don't know lie detector tests. I'm I'm prone to getting into metaphors for things I don't really understand. But hope and the erotic. The erotic I mean the reason I talked about this essay is because I was feeling real down at the end of last week. And I wanted to listen to something inspiring. And I went through my music. I'm like, you don't listen to fucking any inspiring music, dude. So the thing I listened to was this Audre Lorde speech. And hers is the other voice you're, you're hearing here from that, from that, um, that speech. I think it's the original. I'm not sure. Point being, I think the erotic provides a way in to hope. I do. Because here she is, Audrey Lord. She says, once we begin to feel deeply all the aspects of our lives, we begin to demand from ourselves, ourselves and from all our lives' pursuits 
that they feel in accordance with that joy which we know ourselves to be capable of. In other words, our erotic knowledge empowers us, becomes a lens through which we scrutinize all aspects of our existence, forcing ourselves to evaluate those aspects honestly in terms of their relative meanings within our lives, in terms of their erotic value. And this is a grave responsibility. It's projected from within each one of us not to settle, not to settle for what is convenient or shoddy, for the conventionally expected, nor what is merely safe. So once we have this knowledge, it's like the fucking, if if you're, you know, right after I said I'm not doing a religious podcast. If you're familiar with the Bible story, the the Adam eating the apple, uh the the from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the apple opens them up. It shows them they're naked, right? Which they they take as as shameful Adam and Eve, but knowledge of the erotic shows us, oh my god. By asking yourself the question, it feels right to me, you're all of a sudden opening yourself up to the idea that not everything feels right to you. So how do you align your life as much with what feels right to you as possible? And I know um, this is, I don't even want to say this is a privileged take, but that's in there, but I know that not everyone has the luxury of thinking this deeply in this way for very long at a time, but I don't think this is a thing that's just reserved for a certain class. Um, I, I don't think trying to align yourself with what feels right with the erotic as much as possible is is unrealistic. I don't think it's ignoring the fact that, you know, you have to take out the trash. You have to do the dishes. Um, you have to have difficult relationship conversations. It's just saying, yeah, but that's not all there is. And importantly, Audrey Lord says, in touch with the erotic, I become less willing to accept powerlessness or those other supplied states of being which are not native to me, such as resignation, despair, self-effacement, depression, self-denial. Now, you know, I take head meds. We're not talking about whether or not depression is just a mind state here. We're talking about the larger idea of free yourself right now and imagine that resignation, despair, depression, self-denial, self-effacement, how many of those things did you feel after hearing about these shootings or whatever the fucking thing is, man? It doesn't even have to be that big and you don't have to feel guilt for it. It can be the struggle of finding a job. It can be, you know, 
a a relationship you just can't seem to make work. Anything that causes pain, anything that is is causes despair, imagine that that shit's not native to you. So imagine that when I say despair doesn't feel right to me, that that might not just be my preference. Maybe despair isn't supposed to feel right to any of us. And that's not to shame anyone for feeling it. I think it's I think I think it's not even to stop us from feeling it. It's just to say, yo, is it time to realign? And Audrey Lord talks about she has this story in this this speech about um about margarine that's it's the margarine metaphor for the erotic and rather than butcher it i'll just play it some of you here perhaps are too young to remember some of you are not but during world war ii we would buy sealed plastic packets of white uncolored margarine with a tiny little intense pellet of yellow coloring perched like a topaz just inside the clear skin of the bag. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften and then we would pinch the little pellet, breaking it inside the bag, releasing that rich yellowness into the soft pale mass of the margarine. Then taking it very carefully in our hands, we would knead it very gently back and forth, over and over, until the color had spread throughout the whole pound of margarine, leaving it thoroughly colored. I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. (laughs) When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all my experience. I love that story. I think I think about it a lot. Probably once a month since I've first heard that speech. And to me that speaks to the way in which you know, she talks at other times here about like leaning into a stretch of sunlight or painting a fence or brushing up against a woman she loves. Like the, these are ways of connecting to the erotic that are not, that are, that can be as quotidian as the things that cause us despair. And I just wanted to give this to you, I guess, to give this essay, to give this, this thought from Miriam Kaba that hope is not a feeling, um, to let you know that I feel hope, um, and definitely not in a rub it in your face sort of way, because the hope I, well, Again, not even feel. I say it's not a feeling and then I say I feel it. The hope that I that I have, that the hope that I hold onto, the hope that I choose to clasp. 
it's it's not something to be to be envied or rubbed in someone's face. Uh, it's pretty fucking bleak sometimes. And part of the reason I wanted to, I know I'm explaining, <laughs> we're wrapping up and I'm explaining what I wanted to do and why I wanted to do this episode, but that's fine. The explanation I was giving before I interrupted myself there is that I I don't think it's a coincidence that in the Mariam Kaba chapter, she mentions the afterlife as a sort of um, a numbing agent there. And as I'm about to read, Audre Lorde does the same thing. So I think it's important from my end, and I've said this in occasional episodes, it's important in my end for you to know, I don't know where this show fits, man. I know it reflects my interests. I'm proud of it. I think the guests are fucking interesting and varied. I think I'm doing a cool fucking thing here. Um, But when I look for similar things, I don't know. It, like I look at like spirituality shit and that shit is so corny. Where's the non-corny spirituality, you know? The non-woo-woo shit where you're like, yes, I want to believe in more than just what I'm seeing, but can we talk about it in ways that aren't bullshitty, you know? And so that's why in some episodes I mentioned that despite the title of the show, the show is as much about life as it is about death. And what we have in life right now is a hell. So how do we get through it? And I and I I I present to you the possibility that connecting to the erotic is one way of accessing the hope that can get us through. So Audrey Lord says that the erotic um, gives her knowledge of her capacity for joy. And that deep and irreplaceable knowledge of my capacity for joy comes to demand from all of my life that it be lived within the knowledge that such satisfaction is possible and does not have to be called marriage nor God, nor an afterlife. That satisfaction, that sense of it feels right to me, that shit is possible. And I love that you listen to this show. I love doing this show. I'm going to keep doing this show. But don't, don't change your what feels right to you to fit to fit these ideas. I don't I, I don't I don't really believe anyone listening is like on the verge of treating me like a cult leader. So that's probably good. But yeah. I hope there's an afterlife. I, I hope there's something better 
than all this. I just hope that it can be here as much as it is in the future. Thanks for listening. And until next week, remember, you are a mist. You can do anything. You can do miracles. Things that seem impossible. You can do miracles. Miracles. You can do them. Have faith. You are human. And human beings, they do miracles.